How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Over the past five years, California's fight against greenhouse gases has largely focused on smokestacks and tailpipes spewing carbon pollution into the air. In recent years, growing attention has focused on another source of emissions, food production. Scientists and authors such as Michael Pollan have raised awareness about the climate impacts of petroleum-based system that delivers calories from the farm to our forks. While agriculture is increasingly recognized as a source of greenhouse gases that are driving global weirding, they're also seen as an important part of building a more sustainable and resilient economy. New technologies, organics, and other on-farm practices can potentially improve efficiency, improve human health, and reduce environmental degradation. We'll discuss the food and climate nexus for the next hour with our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco and four experts. Cynthia Corey is Director of Environmental Affairs at the California Farm Bureau Federation. Paul Martin is Director of Environmental Services at the Western United Dairymen. Jeannie Merrill is Policy Director with the California Climate Action Network. And Karen Ross is Secretary of the California Department of Food and Agriculture. Please welcome them to Climate One. Welcome. Thank you all for coming today. Karen Ross, let's begin with you. California has a huge agricultural uh, sector. It's about $36 billion, something around Mm 81,000 farms and ranches. How does that connect with the state's uh, efforts to reduce greenhouse gases? What's the connection between agriculture and climate? Yeah, that's a good question. And there's a couple of ways of looking at this. One is that California agriculture is tremendously diverse as well as being tremendously productive. And you can look at the greenhouse gas emissions that have been attributed to California in the state, which the State Air Resources Board says about 6% of the total greenhouse gas emissions are coming from the farm sector itself. But you also need to take a look at what the potential is for those of us on the farm to actually be sequestering carbon and with changes in some of our practices to be an offset to greenhouse gas emissions. But I also think it's really important that we remember that there's also tremendous peril that's presented to California agriculture with climate change. We are part of two interesting trends going on right now. One is really thinking about food security, what's happening around the world right now. We're raising the prices of food to the highest they've ever been, according to the UN Food Index, as well as food shortages have been feeding some of the revolutions that we're seeing. So food security right now, where we have almost a billion people a day who don't have enough to eat, really has brought what the impact is to being able to feed those people to the forefront. Concurrently, through great efforts at the local level, ag vision, food policy councils, roots of change, there's a renewed interest in where our food comes from, how it's produced, and who's producing it. And so the emphasis on local and regional food systems is also making us aware of how do we adapt to climate change to make sure that we can feed the world and also have robust local and regional food systems. And we'll get back to some of those. Some of those food uh, prices are driven by extreme weather events Mm -hmm. and and, uh, uh, other things. Uh, uh, Paul Martin, uh, 
dairy, milk, and cream, I believe, the number one commodity in the state, about a $6, 7000000000 billion uh, piece of the agricultural uh, economy in California. What's the connection between animal uh, dairy and, and climate change? Dairy is uh, presents a particularly provocative opportunity to uh, assist with climate change. The manure that our cows produce can be digested, and uh, the methane gas can be used to replace the consumption of fossil fuels. I think that is an opportunity that is not yet mature, and it is one that uh, we are going to work very hard to try to uh, improve the opportunities for success for alternative energy production. Um, other things that we can do, uh, we've got a lot of dairy barns located throughout the San Joaquin Valley that have acres of roof area. I'd like to see solar installations on those roofs. Uh, the other thing we can do and that we do do very well in California is we are probably the most efficient dairy industry in the world. And if you can uh, look at the climate impacts based on the production of a gallon of milk, California leads everybody else. So uh, the movement to the type of system that we have here in California and the improvement of, and continued evolution of that kind of system of producing milk is going to provide substantial climate change benefits. Thank you. Um, Cynthia, Corey, do farmers, I mean, climate is something that's measured over decades, and scientists like to have three decades of data to talk about climate. Most human beings, and certainly farmers, think about this season, this year, this crop. I mean, does, does the climate conversation even connect with, uh, with farmers? Your, your members, you represent the, many of the largest uh, agricultural pr- producers in the state. Is this, are we even using the right language to connect with your members? Well, I think that you, you said, you said the right word in your, in your introduction, climate weirding. I think we're kind of getting finally to the right word that they'll accept. Um, uh, the California Farm Bureau is a nonprofit association of farmers and ranchers in California, so we represent small, big, all kinds. Family farmers is the, the, the main bulk of our membership, and they've been farming for many generations, so they've seen all kinds of weather, and to them it is climate change truly, because climate changes. So there is a lot of skepticism in the agricultural community. Um, and when I talk to them, I think what, what rings for them and what they think makes sense is uh, energy efficiency. So I think it's always better if we can talk to them about how can we make your production system more energy efficient and then forget that it has, you know, how in if we want to scientifically try to debate whether it's tied to climate or not, that I think it gets lost. So I don't spend a lot of time. And when the minute AB 32 was signed, um, and I was talking to my members, which are the farmers and ranchers, I just said, I'm not a climate change scientist, and neither are you. So we're not going to debate whether it exists or not. What we're going to talk about is that AB 32 exists, and we're going to figure out ways to work within that system. And I think the best thing we can do is look at our production systems and figure out ways to be more energy efficient. AB 32, of course, is California's uh, Global Warming Solutions Act 2006. Uh, 
uh, fair to say that the agricultural industry, oppose, a lot of them oppose that law, and then now it is the law. So, Jeannie Merrill, you know, where, where are we now in terms of connecting sort of the agricultural industry uh, with AB 32, which initially it was outside, and now some people want to connect those dots? Well, climate change and agriculture, I think, is becoming increasingly uh, connected through implementation of AB 32, uh, both through um, the cap-and-trade program that's been proposed by the state that's now somewhat in question. Um, but the state has proposed a cap-and-trade program that would uh, then uh, provide an opportunity for agriculture to reduce its own emissions um, voluntarily as being a part of the carbon market. And the Air Resources Board is working with many stakeholders to kind of sort out what that could look like. Um, but there are other opportunities uh, for agriculture, including the state, if it were to implement uh, cap-and-trade, which, again, is in question, uh, would generate revenue. And one of the things that the California Climate and Agriculture Network that I'm a part of is working on is to say that a portion of that revenue should go for uh, the key things that we need to assist California agriculture to remain viable uh, when temperatures rise, water becomes more constrained, et cetera, and that's research technical assistance for producers, and financial incentives for on-farm conservation practices that can provide both the mitigation benefits, reducing greenhouse gas emissions or sequestering carbon, as as Karen spoke about, or helping agriculture adapt to very different climate conditions in the decades to come. Karen Ross, is that a good idea to connect the agricultural sector to some of the revenues that might be generated by California's cap-and-trade system? I, I do. In fact, I'm enthusiastic about that, and not just with regard to climate change, but when we look at the whole suite of ecosystem services that are provided by our farms, that there are, there's public good that oftentimes comes from really sound management practices. So clean water can be a benefit from an adjustment in practices helping with clean air, taking a look at biodiversity and wildlife habitat. So I think we're to a point in time where those have always been, that's for the landowner to absorb the costs of doing that, even though there's public good. And we're getting much better at being able to account for nature's capital, to be able to say we as a society are benefiting from this, and first and foremost, the open space that's provided by this. So if we want a certain set of practices to help enhance those kinds of public goods, then it's appropriate to share the costs of that. It's still going to be footed by the farmer themselves, but it's a cost-sharing mechanism that actually got a lot of grounding in the last farm bill. And I think the, there's tremendous opportunities for, to continue, for, for us to continue in that path. Cynthia Correa, do you agree that there's a lot of opportunities for your members, for revenue uh, as part of a cap-and-trade system in California, for farmers to get a new source of, of revenue? I am very, um, when, I, when I talk with, with our members, when I talk to farmers and ranchers in the agriculture community, I say, don't think we're going to make any money. If we can break even, that's a, good, that's a good place to start. And then if we do eventually make some money, that would be great. But don't start out there because I think I don't want to get expectations too high. Um, the minute AB 32 passed in 2006, we started working on uh, looking at production systems, agricultural production systems, and looking for those energy efficiencies, looking for those offsets. And I thought it was going to, you know, happen really quickly. And um, I was way over-optimistic. They're very, very complicated. It's very, it's very technically complex because you've got a biological system, and you've got to measure it, and it's going to vary, and you're going to have climate change on top of it. And it's not like you're, you're producing a widget and sticking it in a factory, and you know that that widget took that much energy to produce. You've got a living, breathing ecosystem, and you're trying to quantify it. 
So it's, it's a little bit more complex than I guess we had hoped, but if it's going to turn into an offset that PG&E or BP or a cement factory is going to use for an offset, it's got to be real and a lot of other things too. And so um, it's, it's just taking a little bit longer. So I am, I always look at, I get up every morning, I look at the glass, you know, half full, but I do know that it's going to, it's not going to be a quick, easy, sexy, little fast thing that's going to happen that we're going to be able to splash up there. And it's going to be a slower, more technical, complicated uh, process. Cynthia Corey is Director of Environmental Affairs at the California Farm Bureau Federation. Uh, Karen Ross, you want to Yeah, I just, I just wanted to weigh in because I absolutely agree with Cynthia that we don't want to oversell this as, oh, way to get rich, we're going to go into the carbon market and buy and sell these carbon credits. But I think what is important is that we're recognizing the co-benefits that can come from sound management practices and that there's an opportunity to cost share that in return for providing public good and that's significant. It also I think helps us connect with different stakeholders including our consumers with the way we're farming and what that means for them and I think it also helps us in the regulatory arena to be able to identify that this set of practices can in fact help us accomplish greenhouse gas reductions in addition to cleaner water or biodiversity, and that all of that has benefit. It's taking your asset and maximizing the use of that asset. We've tended to think of farmland as, I produce this crop, and that's it. And I think we can recognize co-benefits. Not that they're going to get rich off any one of those, but the whole package together can keep farmers viable. It can keep them on the land, and it creates an exciting opportunity for the next generation to come in. And that's what I see. Our youth are very excited about being environmental managers. And let's hear from Derry. Paul Martin? Absolutely agree with what uh, Cynthia said. It is not a panacea. We're not going to get rich on methane digesters right off the bat. But we are very early into the game. And uh, we need to try to figure out how we can use the resource that we have available. As far as the general ecosystem services, I can give you a real good example. Several dairies in the Sonoma and Marin County area have cooperated with a group called Students and Teachers Restoring the Watershed, and they have revegetated some of the creeks that uh, were the, the trees that were Previously there had gotten old and, and senile and had not reproduced. So these school children came in and planted some more trees. Specifically on my place, I have a doe and two fawns every year that uh, was not there before. I have a, uh, a gray fox that has her babies in that creek. We went from uh, five species of birds to 17 species in about three years. So these are the kinds of services that uh, the California farms and ranches can provide. Uh, think of what it would be like driving through Marin and Sonoma County and not seeing any cows. It would be a completely different scene than you see there now. So that's why uh, when we talk about ecosystem services, we're talking about the whole spectrum of what farms and ranches provide let alone the economic benefit. Jeannie Merrill? Well, there have been some studies that have suggested that when you do what Paul and others have done, which is to plant riparian zones and farms, that in addition to having the wildlife benefits, which are critical, um, but there's also a carbon benefit. You can um, The woody biomass in a riparian zone or in a hedgerow can 
uh, account for 18% of the farm's uh, carbon that they're sequestering, uh, but only take up about 6% of the land. So that's significant. Um, I think what climate change is going to mean for California agriculture is that, fortunately, we're quite diverse. We're probably going to have to get even more diverse and creative about uh, crop rotations, about how we uh, manage soil, about renewable energy production, other finding other energy efficiencies, water conservation efforts, etc. And we really need the state engaged, working with producers to sort out what does a sustainable agriculture look like in California. There was one study recently I saw from the Agricultural Research Service uh, which cited that outdoor uh, outdoor production over confinement, which is allowing cows, I think, to range freely versus putting them in these concentrated areas, had 8% reduction in methane, uh, methane, nitrous oxide, and CO2, and also that a transition from land-rotated crops to perennial grassland also built up carbon in the soil. Paul Martin, is that the kind of thing that dairy... Uh, farms might want to uh, change their practice and have less concentration and, and go in that direction? Well, for every study that has shown that, there's probably another study that shows the opposite. And where we are right now in this discussion is we have dueling scientists out there. And, you know, that will eventually shake itself out. It's going to take some time. But, um, you know, we all read peer-reviewed journal articles and, and try to... Uh, to make the best decisions we can. But that discussion is not over. And uh, my suggestion is to kind of sit back and let the scientific folks argue it out, uh, ask challenging questions, but remember one basic fact when we think about the best way to produce food is that we need organic food, because people want it. We need grass-fed, because people want it. We need natural, because people want it. And we need conventional, because people want that kind of food. There's a place for every type of production. What we need to encourage is for each one of those types of production to do a better job with the way they produce. And that way, we'll make real gain. And so look at it from that standpoint. Karen Ross, you agree? Well, I, I do. I mean, the, the whole thing here is to really focus on continuous improvement, regardless of how you choose to farm. And what Paul said, I think, is a very important message. It's about consumer choice, and it's about farmer choice. And we should not try to say one way of farming is the solution. We need to be able to farm for the consumer that we choose to farm for. So I know of young people who are getting into farming. They only want to do a couple acres. They want to focus on selling to chefs directly within a 50-mile radius, and that's fabulous. But there are some people who are very intrigued and feel a passionate responsibility to help feed the world, and they want to have those global markets, and they can do that too. I think what's really important is that we embrace it all, that we have good stewardship practices amongst all of those farming systems, and that we allow them to coexist and to continually improve their practices so that we all, as the public, can realize the benefits that are possible. Karen Ross, the Secretary of the California Department of Food and Agriculture, we're talking about cattle, crops, and carbon at Climate One. Our other guests today are Jeannie Merrill, Policy Director from the California Climate Action Network, Paul Martin, 
from the Western United Dairymen and Cynthia Corey from the California Farm Bureau Federation. Uh, organic crops are about 3%, I've read numbers, of, of the farmland in, in California. Uh, is that growing? G.D. Merrill, do you think that, that you know, if that grew, could that address some of the climate issues we're talking about of more people, uh, more consumers willing to pay the organic mm-hmm. premium and therefore uh, mm-hmm. more farmers produced it? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, we're in deep recession. Um, California has very high unemployment, and yet um, organic agriculture continues to grow. Nationally, uh, in 2010, organic food sales increased about 8%. Um, in California, we're the number one organic-producing uh, state in the country and have been for quite some time. Um, we had the first uh, organic certifying body in the country that started in the 70s, the California Certified Organic Farmers, and they're part of our coalition. Um, the UN uh, Food and Agriculture Organization did a, a survey of research um, looking at the carbon footprint of organic agriculture compared to other systems and found that organic agriculture, because it is less dependent on fossil fuel inputs, um, has a lower carbon footprint. It, uh, its energy use is about 30 to 50 percent less than its conventional counterparts. And what we think is that there are, there are lessons to be learned um, from organic agriculture. There are very creative um, and innovative organic producers in California of all sizes and shapes, producing a vast, you know, sort of diversity of crops and livestock products. And while uh, many of those practices can apply in conventional systems and are being used in conventional systems as well, cover cropping, composting, uh, manure use uh, for soil fertility, et cetera. So organic agriculture should be squarely in the middle of the conversations around climate change and agriculture um, and shouldn't be sort of left on the sides. It has something to say about what can happen in terms of climate change. Paul Martin, a lot of your members have switched to organics, uh, and they're making money at it. Yes, we have a substantial number of producers that have uh, converted over to organic, particularly in Marin and Sonoma counties. And uh, from what I can ascertain, they are... Uh, happy with uh, the change that they made. However, that market has constricted in recent months, and so there are several of them that are having to deal with the increased cost of production for organic feed for cows, but they're only able to market about half of their milk. So this is, you know, we hope we get out of these doldrums that our economy is in and can uh, begin to move forward again. But uh, so, are you saying people switched away from uh, organic in the recession? That they got it's a premium, like oh, I'll go back to the regular stuff because it's the consuming public has apparently switched away. The market has constrained to a certain okay. degree, and uh, the folks that have converted to organic uh, are continuing to feed their cows that way, so that when the market recovers, they'll be able to uh, to move back. But. Uh, Organic is very definitely in the game. We have several members of our association that are organic, and uh, I've got one dairyman that milks 30 cows. I've got another dairyman that milks uh, 9,000. So we cover, you know, the, the dairy industry covers a huge spectrum. And the way I look at it is the guy with 30 cows seems to be just as happy as the guy with 9,000 cows. <laughs> Lesson there. Karen Ross, you want to jump no, in? I was just going to say that we have to recognize that one of the costs that can be a factor is the certification cost itself. 
which can become a barrier, especially when we've had the softening economy. I just saw the statistics between 2008 and 2009. We actually had a slight decline in certified organic acres, and it could be because the market's not there, but you can bet that most of those people are maintaining the organic practices. They're just waiting for the market to come back to justify the cost of certification. Cynthia Curry, let's get in here, uh, you in here. Uh, the, your members, how many of them are organic? I mean, do they see, do you see organic as a growing piece of, uh, of the production for your members? Oh, absolutely. I mean, as Jeannie said, we are, well, we're the number one agricultural state, and we're, you know, it goes in hand that we're the number one agricultural producing, organic producing state also. Um, I don't actually know uh, of our members uh, how many, what percent are organic, but uh, we certainly do have a significant number of them that are. And we, um, as a state entity that tries to help all the farmers statewide support all of the systems. But you're agnostic. You don't promote organic because you have to be careful about uh, your members, right? So you don't favor one over the other. You're agnostic on That's whether... absolutely correct. Agnostic. Uh, um, we, uh, let's talk about Walmart because Walmart has actually been a driver here toward organics and, and toward certain practices. They banned the growth hormone uh, in, in milk, and that had a tr- tremendous impact on, on the dairy industry. Paul Martin, um, you know, what extent is a large driver like Walmart shaping and, and creating markets for, for organic dairymen and, and other producers? Well, there's a very long story about the controversy uh, regarding uh, uh, bovine somatotrope and, and its use in dairy cattle. And it, uh, we have to, as producers of food, listen to our customer base. And our customer base said, we're a little skeptical of this. We'd prefer you didn't use it. So practically everyone has stopped using that particular material. Walmart was not the driver for that particular instance but they are the driver in this whole sustainability movement that is taking place. And the way I look at it is, you know, sustainability, I use the uh, three-legged milking stool, which kind of comes natural to me as my uh, analogy for sustainability, but it involves ethical production. It involves scientific and environmental um, responsibility, and it involves economic performance, because with any one of those things, you are not going to be sustainable. And so what Walmart is doing is trying to roll all this together into a system of production. And it's a system of production that I think most of our folks will uh, will address. Uh, nobody gets up in the morning and says, okay, I'm going to go out and and uh, mess up today because that's just what I want to do. Uh, but they do get up every morning, every day and say, I hope I can make some money. So uh, if we're going to have sustainability, we have to address all three legs of that milking stool. And then in the conversation on those three legs, don't forget the seat, the platform that those legs support. And that may be entirely different in San Francisco or in the Midwest or in a third world country someplace else in the world. So you have to consider where you are and what the cultural base of how you're going to define sustainability. And it's not the same every place in the world. 
But if Walmart is successful, and they're very clear, and we've had whole conversations here based on Walmart sustainability initiatives, that they want to drive away that price premium between organics and conventional. They want to make organics accessible and affordable to all their consumers and not have it be a niche uh, sort of uh, coastal elite elite product. If they're successful in that, and it's uh, a lot of people would bet on Walmart being successful, um, how, what, how's that going to impact California agriculture? If they sort of make organic mainstream because they think it's Jeannie Merrill? Well, I think Paul hits on a very important point, that sustainability includes economic viability. And the concern about having such a large entity in the market like Walmart dictating prices for farmers is that you erode that economic viability. We need a diversity of farmers, small, medium, and large, and they need a diversity of markets so they're not dependent on yeah. the Walmarts of the world um, who then squeeze them on price, which unfortunately that's what Walmart is known for, not just in food, but in all areas of their business model. So we have a lot of concerns about what that means. Um, it is not enough to be environmentally sound. You have to have the economic viability as well as the social responsibility. And, and could I add that in this organic discussion, What's really overwhelming over the last three years is the commitment to local and regional, and that creates really wonderful opportunities for us as well. So I don't think we can divorce just one system of farming, but to think about the emphasis on local has also grown and has become a very important value for our consumers and for retailers. And California agriculture is a is an export-oriented economy. It's very global. Is there a conflict between us exporting almonds all over the world. Uh, I, I visit Hong Kong frequently and love to get my Watsonville blueberries yeah. or raspberries there, but then I think about, boy, the cost of transporting those across the ocean and refrigeration. Is there a conflict, Karen Ross, between localism and globalism? Well, I, sure, you could say that if you really only wanted to focus on eating 50 miles from home, but I know some of my friends who went to graduate school in at Cornell and got really tired of potatoes and root vegetables in the middle of the winter. Sure, so, yeah. you know, it's, it's about consumer choice. It's about making your own personal value judgment of how you want to farm. And remember, and going back to my opening comments, we have a world population that will be almost 10 billion people within 35 years. And so we need a lot of investment to be able to feed people around the world. And what's really exciting for me, having been with the Obama administration, is the Feed the Future initiative, which is about the urgency of feeding those people today, but also making the investment in those countries to help them sustainably farm for themselves. And so I think there's tremendous opportunities for all of this and to be able to meet the consumer choice for the value system that they have. And that, to me, is a tremendous opportunity. Plus, when I look at how much food California grows and what we can do on the nutrition side to improve the health of our own citizens here in the state, we now have a health and, and all policies initiative for the state of California that starts with making sure that every Californian in their neighborhood, in their school, and in their workplace has access to healthy California-grown food. Karen Ross is Secretary of the California Department of Food and Agriculture and formerly Chief of Staff for U.S. Uh, Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack. Our other guests today at Climate One are Cynthia Corey with the California Farm Bureau Federation, Paul Martin with the Western United Dairymen, Jeannie Merrill with the California Climate Action Network. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, you mentioned organics, and Jeannie Merrill, one of the raps against organics is they, they can't feed the world. They can't scale. It's, it's, it's a niche product. It's great for us in San Francisco, certain areas, but it's not going to feed the, the, the world of 10 billion people that Karen Ross just talked about. Is that fair? No. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow I knew right, right, right. 
Um, there have been just a number of surveys of, of organic yields, and in fact, organic agriculture can uh, produce um, equal, if not greater, yields in some situations as conventional agriculture. And that's because it's built upon the notion of healthy, fertile soil. Um, soil is the, the basis of um, our agriculture, and organic agriculture um, has consistently been focused on building that healthy soil, and we've seen time and again in California and other parts of the world that um, organic agriculture can perform quite well when it comes to yield. Cynthia Corey, can organics feed the world? Are they more efficient than uh, conventional? I'm not an agricultural economist. <laughs> I, I am skeptical, let's put it that way, at, at this point. And I agree with Jeannie. I mean, uh, healthy soil, which I do know a lot about, it's, which my background is, as an agronomist, is, is, is key. But it's not, the only, it's not the only component. And I think we've got a long ways to go before we would have a healthy soil base worldwide that could feed a world um, without any kind of form of... Uh, well, and one thing I also have to remember that as organic, they absolutely do use sulfur. They use what we call pesticides. What are, and so, I mean, I think people's idea of what organic is uh, might be... Uh, Romanticized? Yeah. yeah. Paul Martin, uh, can organic scale, can organics really uh, help uh, pour milk over all the Wheaties that people eat in America? <laughs> I would have to... Uh, be on the other side of that coin from where Jeannie is. I don't think it can scale up uh, in the dairy industry to uh, to that point because as soon as it scales up, then it gets questioned as to whether it's truly organic or not. We've seen that already with uh, some of the, uh, the operations that have existed that were trying to fill the organic market, but they were doing it from a very intensively operated standpoint. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, but one thing I would mention, again, when we're looking on a, a, a global basis, I was at a conference where people from all over the world in the dairy industry were in attendance. And uh, in the middle of the conference, one lady stood up that was an extension worker in an African country. And she said, you know, you guys from California... You know, you've got dairies with 5,000 cows. She says, that's pretty cool. You guys from Russia, you got dairies with 3,500 cows. That's pretty cool. You guys in the Netherlands, you know, you got some big dairies, um, produce a lot of milk. She says, but I've got tribesmen. And my tribesmen that is milking one cow and providing milk to a neighboring family considers himself a dairyman just as much as you folks do, which was kind of a surprise to me. But then she went on to say, and when you talk about performance, if he gets a little bit better cow and can produce milk for two families, he just cut his carbon footprint by 30%. Can you guys do that? <laughs> so that's the kind of organic agriculture that I see a need to support elsewhere in the world because they're not using the technology that we use here, but there still is a lot of improvement to be made. So from that standpoint, I tend to agree with Jeannie that uh, organic production can go a long ways to improving the quality of life throughout the world. But you also think that the future is a more concentrated 
factory farms, you maybe don't like that term, but you think that the future is more concentrated operations rather than what you call pastoral, free-range kind of uh, animal agriculture. Yes, I do. And uh, that kind of operation allows us to be more efficient in our transportation. It allows us to be more efficient in our energy use. It allows us to be more efficient in uh, the utilization of byproduct feeds, which would be a cost to society if we did not run them through cows first. So I think intensification is uh, going to be very important to be able to feed the, the world. The thing that bothers me is that not very many people are worried about feeding the world. And I think that that's an issue that some of our younger folks need to address because hungry people create revolutions and they cut down a lot of trees. And if we don't deal with that, we're going to be in a world of hurt. Paul Martin is a director of environmental services with the Western United Dairymen. Karen Ross, you want to respond? Well, I just wanted to really underscore that. When we look at the Arab Spring, and, and of course people are unemployed, but they also they, they were experiencing food shortages and rapidly rising food costs. It's very easy for us to take for granted the food choice as well as the availability and affordability of what we have because we spend less than 10 to 12 percent of our disposable income on that. But there are populations and countries around the world that spend as high as 40, 50, and 60 percent of their disposable income. So our very quality of life comes from having those opportunities. Just since last June, the World Bank estimates that over 44 million people have been pushed into poverty because of rapidly rising food costs. So it's something that we as citizens of the globe really be, need to be mindful of. And climate scientists would clearly say that extreme weather events, exactly whether it's right. droughts in Australia or in the United States or, or in uh, declining water flows in, from the Himalayan plateau, is going to further put upward price pressure on Absolutely. rice. Mm-hmm. And uh, it wasn't too long ago we saw uh, rationing of rice here at Costco right. in San Francisco. Um, but and one of the reasons food is so cheap in America is we heavily subsidize corn and other commodities. And there's quite a debate now about subsidizing corn ethanol. Uh, uh, the Koch brothers who are uh, industrialists came out in favor of it. Uh, Tim Pawlenty went says he went to Iowa and talked about ending corn uh, subsidies. Uh, how's this going to affect California agriculture, which relies on cheap corn feed to feed its animals? Paul Martin? Well, corn is not cheap right now. <laughs> <laughs> corn is extremely expensive hard. right now. And... Uh, my answer is very short. It doesn't make sense to me to use 40% of the nation's corn crop to produce ethanol. And that policy has to be changed. So there's a, a numerical mandate that the Department of Energy put in place. We have to produce so many gallons of corn ethanol. You're saying that that should change. Karen Ross, well, you were... And I guess I would argue that corn ethanol is a transition to the next better renewable fuel standard and biofuels and biodiesel in particular have huge potential to help us not just on our economic well-being of being dependent on imported oil and trying to reduce that, but also our environmental well-being of what we can do with greenhouse gas reductions Mm -hmm. by being able to use plant-based and waste-based. And that's where I'm very excited for people not to abandon the technology of ethanol production, but to think about how do we take all the waste that's generated by us as human beings, by what comes out of cows and orchard trimmings and food processing and being able to convert waste into biofuels. And I think the promise of that for all of us and for the world has not begun to be tapped. 
So you're in favor of we should use corn not for fuel but for animals, and that would put ease some of the price pressure. I guess it's clear you're not yeah, running I, in the I, Iowa primaries anytime yeah, well, soon. Well, <laughs> but I also would point out that there is a, a very lively discussion about what's going on with our farm and food policy in this country. And, in fact, farm groups themselves are saying it's time to reexamine historic policies and really be more about risk management tools that make sense for a variety of crops, a variety of crops. Cynthia Corey, do you, does the California farmers care whether the corn goes into gas tanks or into the cows of bellies? Depends which of the 400 commodities you talk to. <laughs> okay. yeah. um, you know, we are very, very diverse, uh, more than any other state in the nation. Um, I am actually from Iowa, originally from a long line of, ki- of, cal- of corn growers. And I remember my uncle long- always saying, you know, they didn't need subsidies. But it didn't happen overnight. We didn't always have subsidized crops. And so it's not gonna, we're not going to change it back over overnight either. It wouldn't be fair because we have created this system over time and we need to figure out just like organics. Organics is a wonderful goal to feed the world. It's just it's not going to happen overnight and it's going to take a long time if we ever get there. It's it's a complex, you know, our food system is very very complex and it's it's not fair to find try to find simple easy fast answers. Um but uh you have to understand that uh, the, the California. I mean, one thing is we are we're very feed we're, we're very feed deficient in California, and we don't have a lot of farm crop. We don't have a lot of program crops that are subsidized. We have a lot more specialty crops, and the money that's coming from to the specialty crops in California is for research. It's not for production. And it's I think as we look at how we can look at ecosystem services versus just straight production payments, people farmers are, are open to that. It's just that you just can't. Switch it overnight and say, hey, we're going to change something that we've been doing for the past 75 years. Yeah, 30s. Cynthia Corey is director of environmental affairs at the California Farm Bureau Federation. We're discussing crops, cattle, and carbon at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, I'm going to ask one more question. We're going to put the microphone right where our photographer Ed is sitting uh, right now. And uh, invite you to come up and form a line over here. Jane Ann or uh, Adam will... Uh, help you get in line to ask a question of our experts today. Um, food policy in America is usually the jurisdiction of the federal or the state government, and yet recently we've seen cities get in on the action on food. Uh, so, Karen Ross, tell us what Sacramento, and I believe it started here in San Francisco, uh, what cities are doing with food policies, which is a very new thing. Oh, I, I love it. It's the real intersection of agriculture, food, health, and nutrition. I think as all of us re-educate ourselves about sound nutrition and what it can do to prevent chronic diseases and the cost of health care, we'll see even more emphasis on that. And I give a lot of credit to our First Lady, Michelle Obama, who really made this a central point of discussion in Washington the last few years, concurrent with the reauthorization of the Childhood Nutrition Act. And that's what cities are doing. They're saying, we can do something about this. So it's about identifying open plots for community gardens. It's about making sure access to healthy, nutritious, locally grown food is available. It's about understanding what does it take to have those farmers on the urban edge or right in our local communities. What does it take for them as far as water or transportation? How do we aggregate to make sure it's getting out? And how do we assure access to our poorest neighborhoods? The work that's being done to address the food desert problem is huge. And what I love best about it is that as we create food policy, it goes back to what food means to me. It's about sharing and building community. And that's what I'm seeing. Just last week I was in San Diego. They just received a new set of recommendations. 
Oakland's done that. L.A. has a very robust food policy initiative. Um, Sacramento has Urban Rural Connects with an awesome planning tool that's captured a lot of attention for regional planning. And I think Fresno is about to undertake that. So I see wonderful opportunities to connect the dots, to share best practices, and to take this. I mean, I think this is something California can and should own. Healthy people, healthy crops, healthy communities. And we're at State of Foodies, so uh, um, <laughs> well, let's have... Well, because we have such great food here. <laughs> yeah, we're very, very spoiled. Uh, let's have the first audience question, please. Hi. Actually, I need to just um, provide a little bit of quick information, and then if anyone wants to speak to me afterwards, that'd be great. But um, Zeri Corporation has developed an air-independent internal oxidation plant, which will u- utilize waste biomass like corn stover and rice stalks, as fuel and produce liquid biofuels, bio-based products, electric power, heat, and liquid CO2 with near zero emissions. So um, <clears throat> we have a question about waste, waste to energy. Um, um, what I just wanted to say is that Dr. Reginald um, Mitchell at Stanford University has done the bench testing, and so if you who are in the situation of needing to get rid of rice stalks or corn stover or hotel waste mass or anything like that, they can contact Zeri Corporation. Thank you. So let's let's talk about you. waste energy. We didn't get to that. Paul Martin. Let me issue a cautionary note as far as waste to energy goes. In order to maintain proper soil health, you need to have a certain amount of organic matter. And if we remove all the plant material that we grow, particularly in soils like we find in the Sacramento-San Joaquin River Delta, uh, we are hurting the, the development of those soils. And uh, we've seen in the Sacramento-San Joaquin River Delta that with continued farming and removal of the crop residue, the soil is actually contracting. So residue management has to be considered when we're talking about waste to energy because we can't take all the organic material out of the, out of the soil. Hold on, we'll get, we'll, we can do that afterwards. Uh, next question, please. Um, yeah, uh, you said something about uh, that methane that all the cattle emit can be um, used for benefit. What I've learned so far is that it's even much worse than, car- you know, carbon dioxide. And also, could you talk a bit about, you know, with the commercial growing of uh, cattle, most people don't realize the very unhygienic way they're brought up and the abuse and, you know, it's unhealthy for us. And even if there's no growth hormone, there's steroids and antibiotics and those things go into our bodies. Um, Thank you. And, and why is it so uh, expensive to be certified organic? That would be great if it wouldn't be. <laughs> okay. So methane, Paul. Okay. I'll answer the methane portion of the question. Um, methane comes from both ends of the cow. Uh, enteric is what she uh, breathes out. And the uh, manure production, when it's in an anaerobic situation, the methanogenic bacteria make make methane. So it comes from both ends of the cow in about equal amounts. Uh, there's things you can do on the front end of the cow to uh, manipulate the ration that she's fed. 
And uh, that's something that we work pretty hard on because anything that methane that she breathes out is lost energy that she's not able to use for production. Okay, from the standpoint of the uh, methane itself, it has a global warming potential of 21 times CO2. Uh, nitrogen uh, oxide has... Nitrous uh, oxide, 300. 300. So, you know, every gas does not have the same global warming potential. So um, I'll stop on that Met, one. Yeah, methane is extremely uh, potent. Uh, quickly on how, why is it so expensive to be certified organic, Karen Ross? It's, it's just the third-party audit system, and there's a cost associated with that. And so uh, if you're not getting the market return, why would you certify, although you won't stop doing the farming practices? It's yes. just something that comes to us continually. The so USDA has a program to help yeah. provide cost-share dollars for organic certification. So. Okay. Next question, please. Yeah, hi. Um, cap and trade didn't, wasn't successful, but as climate change unfolds before us, the country may implement significant price on carbon in the future. How will that impact agriculture, dairy, et cetera, both pro and con, if it was like a significant price on carbon? Cynthia Corey? Well, I, I don't know if we've uh, proved out that cap and trade isn't successful yet because we haven't implemented it yet. Um, it failed nationally. It just at the national level. Yeah. Oh, okay. At the national level, it didn't part. go anywhere. Right, okay. Um, how do you create a regional market? Because, as you know, we're about to, even though there's been a hiccup in the process here at the state level, it's well on track to continue um, probably soon after the beginning of 2012. So, there's for people listening, uh, there's litigation that has suspended California's cap-and-trade law, though the rest of AB 32 is going right. forward. Uh, but can California go it alone, I think, is part of the question, is the United States is, is not going to implement a national system. Karen Ross, can California do it with the other states? And some of these other states have been wavering and wobbling lately. Well, it, they have been, although there's been a lot of time and effort invested in building coalitions of states. As the previous administration referred to it as subnational governments can, in fact, make a lot of change happen, that oftentimes if we focus on more regional scale we can test something and start to make it happen and drive change further up. I think it's obvious from California's history and the regulatory arena, we do believe we can go it alone. And we have been successful oftentimes because of trying to address issues of concern at the state level at getting the waiver or the accommodation from the federal government to be able to proceed with some of the programs that we've had. So I think at this point, um, Governor Brown is as committed to climate change and implementing um, the AB 32 requirements, there's no reason to think that it's going to change and that it's incumbent upon us to continue to reach out to other states and other countries who are, are proceeding down this path to try to make those kinds of global and regional partnerships that will drive change at the national level. And Paul Martin, the dairymen, still support cap and trade, yeah? Actually, my organization has not taken a position. Um, the but, things that we deal with on uh, the climate front, uh, exceedingly hot weather, particular periods of time of high humidity. Uh, our guys are pretty well dealing with those on an individual basis. They have not made the connection to an overall, oh, this is because of climate change. So uh, they're, they're dealing with them in such manners as redesigning their barns for more efficient cooling, that kind of thing, uh, pretty much on an individual basis. But they haven't really, you know, coupled it all together and said, yeah, this is climate change. Okay. Uh, next audience question, please. Uh, thanks. I just want to thank you all for being here today. This is a great discussion. 
So I'm going to use your three-legged stool as my platform. <clears throat> and you know a stool is best if it's flat. But I think we have an unba- imbalanced stool. If you look at the three forms of capitalism, you have natural capital, which is fixed at one, can't grow or, or decline according to the laws of thermodynamics. Second is human capital, which is currently growing at about 1.5%, which is giving us 10 million or 9 billion people by 2050. And the third leg of the stool is the financial capital. And that's where the imbalance is because it requires 8% growth, 10% growth, 25x, 50x. You know, I want a Groupon stock or whatever like that. So the question is, given the fact that I just read an article the other day, 35% of the food that we purchase, we throw away. Part of it is that there's this constant desire for growth. We've got to grow, we got to grow, we got to grow. How do we get that stool balanced so that the capital for human, natural, and financial are balanced? Thank you for that question. Who'd like to uh, tackle that one? Paul, it's your stool. I guess you're. I was thinking. I was thinking. You guys think. Well, I'll uh, I'll give the first answer. I kind of. Who was it? Satchel Paige, the baseball pitcher, that said, "Don't look behind you because somebody might be catching up." (laughs) And uh, that's kind of the economic system that we're involved in right now. It very definitely is based on growth, and I don't think anybody has really designed a way to have an absolutely stable and closed system that we do depend on growth. We depend on growth. I mean, look at the government. We depend on growth in order to finance the government. I remember as city councilman in, in my town of Petaluma lamenting that she made land use decision based on the increase in tax revenue. So she's depending on growth in order to keep it going. So um, that very definitely is the system we're involved in. Karen Ross? Yeah, I, I just want to suggest that perhaps that has been the way of the past and that there are some indicators that I think, I don't know the answer, but there are indicators like the long-term unemployment that we've suffered in this country. Um, we've had rapid growth in China and India, which is creating huge middle-class sectors. But is it really sustainable? I think that's some of the questions that are being asked. And if we have long-term unemployment and people get conditioned to less this or less that, and start to have more human connections and start to be part of their community, do they start to find a replacement for the kind of rapid growth, buy things, consumption model that is very much what the past few decades was about? I I don't have the answers, but I think there's some interesting trends going on here and around the world that suggest maybe our future is going to look like more the past past before we got into everything being built on a rapid consumption of everything mode. Uh, one thing is young people often look at mobility as a service rather than coveting a car to own. It's yes. one example of something exactly. that they, they uh, some generational mm-hmm. changes that are mm-hmm. happening in consumption and expectation patterns. Uh, we're discussing cattle's, cattle crops and carbon at Climate One. Let's have the next question, please. Um, let's see. I've heard reference to the agriculture producers. They won't relate to climate change but energy efficiency. And the consumers want organics. And... We're taking advantage of these sort of personalized interests to drive what's a globe, to solve a global problem, which is climate change. Is it enough and can we really count on people acting in their self-interest to solve a global problem? Oh, that's good. I, I, I think there are a couple things that haven't been brought up today um, in the depth that they really deserve it because I think they're creating more of a sense of urgency. One is what's happening with invasive species and weeds that are going into areas they weren't before. If you look at our forests of the Rocky Mountains, for example, a change in 
temperature of three degrees has now brought pine bark beetle that's creating unbelievable devastation to the Rocky Mountains. It's now 150 miles further south than it once was. And those start to create where we all share the pain of what that is going on. And I would suggest California with our water situation and the events that you talked about as we learn how connected we are in the globe because fires on this continent and extreme drought on this continent and floods on this continent all together contribute to a food shortage and rising food prices that perhaps it'll be unfortunate kinds of situations like that. Plus, I would suggest combined with the next generation, I really admire the youth of today because they're so connected on a global basis that, you know, they, they have a sense that they are a citizen of the world. And I think that's good for our future. I'm an optimist. Karen Ross, the Secretary of the California Department of Food and Agriculture, we're discussing agriculture and climate change at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, next audience question, please. Uh, this question is for Jean. Uh, what's your plan B if cap-and-trade does not work? We're not particularly tied to cap-and-trade as part of the solution for AB32, and the Air Resources Board yesterday came out with their review of alternatives to cap-and-trade, so that includes uh, carbon taxes as well as direct regulation, et cetera. What we're most concerned with is that, as we've been talking about today, California agriculture is uniquely vulnerable when it comes to climate change, and we don't have the resources to address that. Um, it's, for example, uh, Farmers need good technical assistance that's based on science to understand what the alternatives may be for them to better conserve water or consider other crop rotations, um, et cetera. But the number of farm advisors that we had, in, that we have in California, that the peak of them was in 1969. <laughs> so um, California has done a lot on environmental policy and innovation, uh, but really has not played a leading role in figuring out innovative agricultural policies to be able to address climate change. So what we would like to see, whether it comes to revenue through cap and trade or another source, to see investment in research and technical assistance and financial incentives so that California agriculture is well positioned to deal with a very different climate 50 to 100 years from now. We have a few uh, minutes left. Let's try to get in as many questions as we can here at Climate One. Please. Yes. Um, I guess the two buzzwords I'll use are contamination and contagion of contamination and atrocity. I don't like buying food from abroad. Uh, I won't name the country, but I know their soil is full of toxic substances. I don't like the fact that there are not openness about the conditions of the soil, the food imports coming here, uh, and, and what that means for the consumer. At the same time, I don't like exporting the atrocity and animal, anything based on animal cruelty or any kind of cruelty. So my question is, before we start expanding the global interchange game, is there no possibility of cleaning up acts locally, meaning here domestically and in other countries, and addressing the uh, terrible devastation that agricultural and economic policies have placed upon us. So before we go forward, is there no time to clean up? Thank you. I'd like to know. Cynthia Corey. Um, I spend uh, all of my time working with the agricultural community on environmental compliance. And I can assure you that in California, we are the healthiest, most proactive 
environmental regulatory system of agricultural food in the world. And I've also had the opportunity to work around the world in agricultural systems. So while we will always need to get better, and there's plenty of opportunity to get better, I just want to assure you that there is a very, very high degree of environmental integrity in our food production system in California. Paul Martin, I mean, factory farms, CAFOs, people see the concentration of feedlots, et cetera. I think that often, that image comes to people's mind when questions like that come up. There's no question that it does come to people's minds. Uh, I would suggest that a greater familiarity with what actually takes place on a CAFO, which CAFO is an acronym for confined or concentrated animal feeding operation. And uh, the definition includes the fact that there's no natural growth of vegetation in the area where the animals are housed. Um, And that could be a dry lot or it could be a uh, freestall barn like uh, many of our dairies use. But when you... uh, and I'm going to be a little facetious here, but when you look at it and apply that definition, most of us live in CAFOs because the city of San Francisco is a CAFO. We don't grow our own food within our boundaries. So it's not a question of whether it's good or bad. It's a question of whether you, on your operation, are doing it well or not. So you can have a very well-operated pastoral system, and you can have a poorly-operated pastoral system. Same thing on a CAFO. You can have a very well-operated CAFO, or you can have one that uh, has problems and should be fixed. We're getting close to the end here. Next question, please. Yeah. Um, thank you. Um, I just wondered, we, we talked a little bit about what happened with the climate legislation federally. And we've talked a little bit about the possibilities of, of lo- the logjam here around AB 32 and implementation. I'm, I'm interested in how any of you might consider or if you think it's possible that California could develop its own comprehensive agriculture and food policy that would be an analog to a federal bill that would free us up to, to be creative. I know there's some, there's some budget constraints right now, but uh, thinking long term, is that a possibility? Well, Secretary I, Ross? I, I would say yes, and it's because of what's happening at the local level that <clears throat> that suggests that we don't have a California food policy. We do now have, because of the strategic growth initiative under SB 375 a couple of years ago, we now have one health or health and all policies type of approach, and part of that is built on food. I would suggest there is a need for us to take what's happening at the local level and, and present a California state food policy, and it could create um, some momentum for the things that we need, especially when I think about some of the biggest needs for how we continually improve and adapt to the changes that we're facing in research, extension, financial incentives, and food access. I think those are all things that go together really, really well. And at the same time, if we feed ourselves good, nutritious food, we can also avoid health care costs down the road. So I think there's every reason for us to consider that. Jeannie Merrill? 
Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, we did. We were curious. We wanted to get a sense of what are the resources currently available for California farmers and ranchers um, when thinking about climate change. So we looked at the research that's been conducted. What's the ability of a farmer to access technical assistance? And then what are the state's programs to support on-farm conservation through financial incentive? And we found that there are plenty of other states, Wisconsin, Iowa, Pennsylvania, Michigan, et cetera, that provide uh, programs, cost-share dollars, incentives for for farmers and ranchers uh, who are interested in doing on-farm conservation. We don't have anything like that in California. As the leading agricultural state, uh, we're just behind the curve. So I think absolutely there's a lot of room for uh, plenty of innovation uh, for state and food ag policy in California. Let's squeeze in one last one. Yes. Um, you, a number of you talked about the, the difficulties of, of change. It's going to take a long time. How, how farmers can be informed about their choices, etc. And we've talked about the role of advisors and so forth in the government. But what, what is happening in the farming community or perhaps between different um, groups to, to uh, get farmers better informed, uh, to collaborate perhaps about solutions uh, across different farms and so forth, and, uh, and perhaps uh, not taking so much the technical approach, but just practical things that, that they can share to, uh, to improve yeah, practices. I'd like to give an example from, from my previous career with the wine and wine grape community where we created a statewide sustainable wine growing program, which is really about sharing practices across your peers. You have early adopters. There are now 14 different commodities that are creating similar <clears throat> programs. Almonds will be out shortly. And so there are those kinds of those kinds of actions that are happening already. The other thing is that anything that shortens the distance between the farmers and consumers, so consumers can express, this is what I would like, and a farmer goes, this is where the market is, also creates pathways to the kind of change because they recognize that there's a demand for it and why the demand is there, and I think those are good efforts as well. And we need to end it there. Our thanks to Karen Ross, Secretary of the California Department of Food and Agriculture, Paul Martin, Director of Environmental Services with the Western United Dairymen, Cynthia Corey, Director of Environmental Affairs at the California Farm Bureau Federation, and Jeannie Merrill, Policy Director of the California Climate Action Network. We've been discussing crops, cattle, and carbon at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you for coming, and thank you for listening.